Hello and good morning once again to all of my favorite people out there. I hope this week has treated you exceptionally well so far. This weekend, I happened to put on those Sherlock Holmes movies with Robert Downey Jr., Love, and I thought to myself, who out there is the real-life equivalent? At this point in time, I believe that person happens to be Private Eye J.J. Armes. While his entire life is a perplexing Agatha Christie plot, one of his cases sticks out above the rest. The murder of Linda Sing Shin Suk. My name is Eli, and this is Murder in the Morning. My sources for today come from multiple Chicago Tribune articles, KTSM News, and the rest I will put down below. J.J. Armas is a Mexican-American amputee, actor, and renowned private investigator. Born in El Paso, Texas, he was only 11 years old when he lost both of his hands. Him and a buddy were playing with explosives near a railroad track, and well, you can imagine what happened. While he lost both of his hands, his wit grew stronger by the years. After a stint in acting, he started his private investigation agency in 1958, which would become his greatest claim to fame. Quote, El Paso's famous private investigator, J.J. Armes, is now 88 years old and still solving cases. Telling KTSM News, that's what keeps him young. They come to me and I solve their problems, and that's the satisfaction in my heart, said Armes. I still feel like a young person, like I'm 45 or something, so to me, my age doesn't mean anything. Armes allowed KTSM to take a look behind the Iron Gate at his Lower Valley estate, where a lion fireplace, chandeliers, and of course his collection of custom suits could be seen. However, he's not spending his days at home in his flamboyant house, during our interview, his phone was ringing from people with problems needing solving. Armes is quick to work on a case of any scope, and one of his most recent involved a stolen golf cart in El Paso. He said, we apply as much energy to a simple case as we would a most difficult one. The office of private investigator J.J. Armes can be seen on Montana Street in central El Paso. Inside are pictures of hundreds of investigations past. He lives in the Lower Valley, but has traveled around the world solving crimes. Armas told KTSM News that he's done too many investigations to count, but some he will never forget. At some point during the interview, he even pulled out pictures of himself and Marlon Brando, an actor who had hired Armas back in the 70s. Marlon Brando hired JJ to find his son Christian, who was kidnapped from Beverly Hills, California. Armas found the boy in San Felipe, Mexico, and flew him back to America. After solving Marlin's case, Armas returned to El Paso, when years later, he traveled 8,000 miles to Chiang Mai, Thailand, to solve another of his most memorable cases, which we will get into soon enough. Despite traveling around the world for investigations, J.J. Armas always comes home to El Paso, end quote. Sometimes referred to as the 8,000-mile manhunt, this is the murder of Linda 
Sing Shing Suk. Born in Thailand in 1966, Linda had showed immense potential for her entire life. When she was only 18, she moved to the States for school where she met a man by the name of Donald Weber at the University of Illinois at Champaign. They met at school during the 1980s and the relationship grew quickly. In the summer of 1987, he and Linda and her mother went back to Thailand to meet their relatives. He said this meeting signaled that the relationship was serious and probably would lead to marriage. That fall, she started medical school at Northwestern University while he graduated and began working as a tax consultant in New York while going to night school to take advanced tax law courses. Donald said, it was all for her. It was burning me out, but I knew she was going to be there for me in the end. I wanted her more than I wanted anything else, end quote. But after roughly three years of a long-distance relationship, their first large bump in the road appeared. Donald found out that Linda had been seeing another man while he was away in New York. Weber brought it up to her, and she re reassured him that it was nothing. But in subsequent conversations, he said, it became quite clear that her interest in the man was not a, quote, passing fancy. He believed that this new man held the wrong intentions, that he wasn't in it for the long haul, and this made him even more frustrated to see Linda connecting with him. Quote, in April of 1989, she called Donald to tell him that she was in love with this other man, but that she also loved him too. And in February of 1980, Weber was laid off from his job, moved back to Illinois, and began studying for the Illinois bar exam. It was then, he said, that he and Linda officially broke up. Although he still would see her from time to time, he stayed in the relationship, or at least refused to walk away from it, because he loved her. Weber said, I loved her dearly. If you've ever been this close and shared that closeness, you don't want to give it up. You feel as if you're one person. Depressed, Weber said, he went to Thailand for a six-week vacation. But before he went, he mailed copies of nude photographs he had taken of Linda to her friends in an unsuccessful attempt to get money from her. When Weber got back, he learned that Linda and her mother were going to Thailand and he believed that her new boyfriend would be taken to meet relatives in preparation for marriage. That was the final straw, end quote. Full of rage, Weber constructed a homemade silencer for a 22 caliber pistol he owned and headed to Linda's dorm in Chicago. Quote, on April 16th, Weber returned to Linda's dorm room, this time armed with an automatic handgun. He'd fashioned a silencer, silencer for the weapon from two fiberglass-lined soda cans. He shot her six times in the chest, then sat quietly in the room for an hour, waiting to see if anyone had heard the gunfire, but no one did. He wrapped her body in a sleeping bag, then stuffed her into a laundry hamper. He carried the hamper down a flight of stairs, then rode the elevator to the ground floor where his car was parked. A day later, Linda's doormate would report her missing, end quote. Immediately, the investigation stalled. Without a body, investigators couldn't even conclusively determine foul play, where she was, or even who this Linda character is. The two spots of blood found in her dorm room couldn't be positively identified as hers, and initially, the police thought the possibility of murder was remote. According to some reports, she had mentioned suicidal thoughts to a friend before her disappearance, 
and so police's first theory was that she drowned herself in the nearby Lake Michigan. But as the days dragged on and no body surfaced, the suicide theory quickly faded into the background. Meanwhile, Donald, who police never considered a suspect, moved back to Robinson, Illinois, and kept his head down eventually. But soon, he became antsy. Donald started calling Linda's parents and reminiscing about old memories, or simply saying, hello, and hanging up. In October of that year, he had coffee with Linda's mom before flying back to Thailand. According to the Chicago Tribune, on Christmas Day, Weber made a collect call to Linda's parents, during which he offered to tell them where their daughter's body was in return for $50,000. That call, and several subsequent calls, helped a private investigator hired by the family track Webster down. The investigator, J.J. Armez, eventually flew 8,000 miles to Thailand, where he conducted a 22-hour interview with Donald Weber. According to Armez, Weber admitted that he had killed Linda. While no one is sure of the motive, Armez said Weber complained that she had lied about wanting to marry him. The investigator said he's got ice in his veins. He's a cold, cold-blooded person. When talking about killing her, you would have thought he was talking about killing a chicken. Linda's body was exhumed from a patch of Arizona forest after Weber led Armas to the spot. Initially, Weber had drawn Armas a crude map of the gravesite while still in Thailand, but Armas was unable to locate the grave with it. He then called Weber and asked him to return to the U.S. He assured him that he was only interested in finding Linda's remains, not in turning him over to the authorities. But when the two men arrived at, at the gravesite in a national forest in Coconino County, Arizona, 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 FBI agents and local police were hiding and waiting for him. Police officer McFarland said, We felt very early in the investigation that Donald Weber may have had something to do with Linda's death, but there wasn't a damn thing we could do about it. We lacked some basic ingredients. We couldn't place him at the scene, and we didn't have a body. On the eve of jury selection for his trial, Donald Weber pleaded guilty to the murder of Linda. Prosecutors accepted this plea deal and sentenced him to 75 years in prison with parole eligibility after 35 years, which would be roughly in 2028. And in the years since, Linda has been remembered for her kind and loving soul. During their third year of medical student, members of the class of 1991 at Northwestern experienced the unthinkable, the murder of their classmate, Linda Singshin Suk. I hope I'm saying that right. And years later, they've not forgotten her. To honor Linda and the lost promise of all that she would have given to medicine, her peers established the Linda Class of 1991 Scholarship. Linda was so smart. She was the teacher's assistant in our histology class, enrolled in the course while simultaneously teaching the rest of us, remembered Farah Fakori, a specialist in vascular medicine and friend of uh, Linda's. This scholarship reminds us of her, added Dr. Fakori. It reminds us that we survived what Linda did not. It reminds us that it is our honor and our privilege to be able to be physicians. Linda would have made such a fine one. Linda's mother said she always wanted to become a doctor so she could help people. She and her husband 
Song Sompong have planned an estate gift to support this scholarship. We want to help future students so that they can go on to help people like Linda would have. We want her name to carry on. Working together, 34 alumni and friends have made the Linda Scholarship one of the most successful endowed scholarships at the medical school. So far, so far they've pledged more than 250000 in outright gifts and $1.5 million in planned gifts to fund medical students who go on to serve patients in Linda's name in perpetuity. Dr. Fukuri added, May God bless Linda, her memory, her family, and the generosity of the doctors from the class of 1991. This scholarship is the least we can do to pay tribute. And that, my friends, is the story of Linda Sing Shin Suk and our amazing private eye, J.J. Armez. I apologize for the shorter episode today. Uh, it was a tough case to research and to find information on. Basically, only three Chicago Tribune articles held anything substantial, and the rest was, like, Facebook postings about other Lindas that <laughs> didn't relate to her story. And I was uh, just a bit under the weather while writing, so I apologize. But thanks again to each and every one of you from the bottom, bottom of my heart. And don't worry, our P.I. extravaganza will continue after the music. Okie dokie. Bye-bye. Love you. bonus story today features one of history's greatest detectives, Kate Warren, titled How Kate Warren, America's First Woman Detective, Foiled a Plot to Assassinate Abraham Lincoln, written by Kelly B. Gormley of the Smithsonian Magazine. On a hot summer day in, in, ooh, on a hot summer day in 1856, Detective Alan Pinkerton looked up from his desk and greeted the young woman standing in front of him. He assumed she misunderstood a job posting by his firm, the Chicago-based Pinkerton National Detective Agency. As Pinkerton told the visitor, he wasn't looking for a secretary, but Kate Warren, a 23-year-old widow and recent transplant from New York, had a different role in mind. She wanted to be his newest detective. No American detective agency had hired a woman investigator before but Kate Warren made a convincing case. She could infiltrate places easily, as no one would expect a woman to be an undercover detective, and befriend the wives and girlfriends of suspected criminals. She told Pinkerton, women have an eye for detail and are excellent observers. What I love in that moment is she basically comes right at him and says, I can see things and hear things that you're not going to see or hear, explains Brad Meltzer, a co-author of the Lincoln Conspiracy. Kate Warren's argument worked, and later that night, Pinkerton decided to take, take a chance on his unconventional applicant. It was a wise decision. In addition to making history as the first woman detective, Warren likely saved Abraham Lincoln's life by helping to uncover and thwart a plot to assassinate him ahead of his March 1861 inauguration. At first, Alan Pinkerton was flummoxed says Brian McNary, current vice president of Pinkerton, which opened in 1850 and is now headquartered in Ann Arbor, Michigan. 
It wasn't really a customarily appropriate position for a lady, he went on to say. Still, she pointed out to him the advantages that her gender carried with it and the ability to gain confidences and position of access that would be unavailable to a male. To this day, we don't know if Alan Pinkerton is just an amazing advocate for women's rights or he's just a shrewd businessman who realizes she's going to make him a lot of money. Whatever his reason is, he hires her. Little is known about Kate's early life except that she was born into a large, impoverished family in the town of Aaron, New York. In 1833, her father was a minister, and as a young woman, she took on the role of running the household. According to McNary, she longed to escape her upbringing and become an actress, but both of her parents discouraged her dream. How Warren landed on detective work as an alternative to acting is unclear but she quickly established herself as a leading Pinkerton investigator. In 1859, for instance, she helped track down Nathan Maroney, who was suspected of oven bezeling from the Adams Express Company in Montgomery, Alabama. Kate Warren replaced her northern accent with a southern one, befriended Maroney's wife, and alongside Pinkerton colleagues, elicited a full confession from the embezzler. She was able to blend in well and was very articulate, says John Derrig, an author who published novels about Warren in 2014. She was able to fit in with the elite. She was able to go to these parties and learn different things without them knowing that she was working for the Pinkerton Agency. He continues, She dressed the part of it or fit right into whatever situation she was in. She was very brave and she was very comfortable doing what she was doing because she was good at it. Highly impressed with Kate Warren's work in Alabama, Pinkerton placed her in charge of his newly created Female Detective Bureau in 1860. She served in that role for the rest of her life, overseeing the recruitment of all the agency's women, women detectives, including Hattie Lawton and Elizabeth H. Baker, both of whom spied for the Union during the Civil War. Exactly how many women Kate Warren hired is unknown, but under her leadership, the Chicago-based bureau expanded into several regional Pinkerton branches. Alan Pinkerton placed unreserved faith in her ability, the vice president, the current vice president says today. He was fond of saying she had never failed him. In Pinkerton's own words, Warren was a rather commanding person, and with an ease of manner that was quite captivating at times, she was calculated to make a favorable impression. In February 1861, Warren and several other Pinkerton colleagues, acting at the request of Samuel Felton, president of the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore Railroad, infiltrated a secessionist plot to assassinate Lincoln before he could be inaugurated as president. Felton, who had received a tip about a, quote, deep-laid conspiracy to capture Washington and prevent, and prevent the inauguration of Mr. Lincoln. Kate Warren went, un went undercover to unravel the plot, reprising her Maroney-era performance as a Southern Belle from Alabama. Using the alias Mrs. Cherry, she attended parties and became friendly with the wives and sisters of the men intent on killing Lincoln, and in doing so, helped crack the case. According to Pinkerton's records, the most plausible plan uncovered by the agency called for the conspirators to attack Lincoln between his arrival at Baltimore... Baltimore Street Station on the afternoon of February 23, 1861, and his departure from Camden Street, about a mile away, later that day. 
To avoid the would-be assassins, Pinkerton snuck Lincoln into the Baltimore into Baltimore aboard an overnight train that arrived in the city at 3:30 a.m. The president-to-be pretended to be Warren's invalid brother, with the woman detective posing as his caregiver. Warren gained the train conductor's sympathy and secured an entire sleeping car for her and the party of four, herself, Lincoln, Pinkerton, and Lincoln's bodyguard, and nobody but the Pinkerton crew realized that the incoming president was on board, and Lincoln arrived safely in D.C. at 6 a.m. At the end of the day, what she was amazing at is understanding how people don't look at you, depending on what they think of you. She keenly understood that the way men underestimate women was an advantage to her. Kate Warren lived a remarkable but short life. She died of pneumonia on January 28, 1868, at age 34 or 35. Pinkerton, who was reportedly at her bedside when she died, arranged for her burial in the Pinkerton family plot at Graceland Cemetery in Chicago. Among the brightest and shining stars of the history of Pinkertons, Kate Warren is probably the least known and the most loved of all of them. Warren's death, like her life, received little fanfare. Still, an obituary published in the Democratic, Inqui Democratic Inquirer recognized her as a, quote, a most remarkable woman who deserves a passing notice. The Ohio newspaper continued, she was undoubtedly the best female detective in America, if not in the world, end quote. And that, my friends, is the incredible tale of Kate Warren, one of the world's greatest detectives, man or woman, to live. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you once again to everyone who listens, chimes in, shares, or reviews these episodes. It is always very, very appreciated. Okie dokie. I will see you bubbly folks next week. Bye-bye. Love you. <laughs>